The first one uh, will focus on people who are actually doing work with, uh, with the, um, children on philosophy. The second one will look at uh, the philosophy of philosophy for children and its relation perhaps to the history of philosophy. And the final one will look at policy. So we've got practice, philosophy, and then policy. Thinking about uh, philosophy for children reminded me of something that happened through the course of the 20th century during the expansion of the universities in Britain. Uh, the older universities, Oxford and Cambridge, had, had virtually was, was all there was to university life in Britain for a long time, and then there were other institutions grew up, but there was a major expansion of the universities in the 20th century, and um, one reason for that was because of a developing economy needed uh, a larger managerial class trained up to work in a new economy. And so there was, a, as it were, an economic imperative behind the decision to expand the universities. And that meant that uh, an elite education was available to a growing number of people. Elite education in some respects became mass education. First of all, um, women were allowed to go to university and uh, working class people were allowed to go to university and so on. You had a, a, a real transformation of, of the uh, system really of higher education in Britain. And although, as I say, that could be thought of as uh, responding perhaps in the first instance to uh, an economic imperative, it also clearly has a political dimension that one could call a certain kind of democratization. Subjects which, and a level of uh, exploration of subjects which have been available only to a very few was available to a very great many more. And so you had this sort of democratization of higher education through the 20th century. And one of the features of that would mean that philosophy would be available to many more people than it had ever been available to before, with philosophy an absolute core subject in the idea of the university in Britain and, and in the rest of Europe as well. Um, with the rise of the new universities the, the, in, the, in the late 19th, 20th century, philosophy remained an absolute core part of the idea of a liberal education and uh, of the development of um, young impressionable minds to cultivate them and so on. Now that movement of democratization clearly starts breaking down established borders within society and it's perhaps then of no surprise that at some point the question of whether disciplines which have been restricted to a university setting would be opened out beyond it. And uh, philosophy, one might say, has been very late in um, opening itself or engaging itself even with the question of its relation to age. Um, I'm sure we'll have quite a lot of this through the afternoon about philosophy's understanding of uh, the right time to do philosophy. But we're going to jump straight in today with uh, people who are already doing it, doing philosophy with children, see, uh, or have interest in the idea of uh, doing philosophy at a school level. And uh, we've very, I'm delighted to have Anthony Selden here today, who's going to chair this first panel. He'll introduce his panel, 
Uh, they'll have the time allotted to them, and then we'll have a break and move on to the second one. But I hope you enjoy uh, the discussions and have a good day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. I'm going to be really uh, quick and brief here because it's already five past. We have to finish at 10 to. If the speakers are all brilliant and don't overrun, that will give a maximum of 15 minutes for questions, and I'm really keen to get questions out. And questions really around three core areas about why, in a very crowded curriculum on earth, should young people be uh, studying philosophy? Uh, if there are compelling reasons for them to do it, uh, then what should they be looking at? Should they just be learning about what great philosophers have said, or should they be looking at philosophical problems and uh, developing uh, reasoning? Uh, within their own minds, and thirdly, what age? Uh, what age is right? Uh, uh, 11, 13, 16, or, or 4? And in my own school, uh, everybody learns philosophy. So, uh, over to uh, Peter Worley is going to speak first, and I'm not going to introduce him because I'm making an assumption here that everyone can read. <laughs> and I've heard far too many uh, speakers, uh, panel chairman, waffling away, so I'm not going to do that. Peter Woolley. Thank you very much. Okay, very quickly. Let's just go. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'd like to not waste any time. Straight on with my talk, and the question I'd like to ask is or address is can children do philosophy? Seems like a nice place to start. Um, so I thought there's a number of ways in which this can be approached. You can, for instance, um, define philosophy very broadly so that almost any kind of uh, query or questioning that a child or children do. Uh, can be construed as philosophical. However, I think that this is what invites a lot of problems from the critics, a lot of concerns from the critics, um, by saying that this just isn't narrow enough, it isn't close enough to philosophy, it's too wide, um, and is uh, therefore not, not a rigorous answer to the question. So, now of course, this then leads you into the quagmire of trying to define philosophy, which, as I say, is a quagmire, it's very, very difficult to do. So rather than define philosophy uh, definitively, um, what I'm going to do is do it uh, provisionally for the purposes of today. Uh, so I thought what I'd do is define philosophy more academically, not necessarily because I'm saying that this is what philosophy is, and of course there's a huge debate as to what philosophy is, but just so that I can say, well, if we, if we look at how we might what sort of things we might include on our list of what philosophy is. And if we were to include some reasonably academic kind of um, expectations, then if we can show that the children are doing these things, then at least we can say that children can do philosophy in a way that is recognisable to academics. And that gives us just a standard with which to then discuss then how we do philosophy and all the further questions as to why, sh why we should do philosophy. So without further ado, I'd like to just show you my list. 
my definition, if you like. But I'm being a bit careful about this because this is much more Wittgensteinian. I'm not trying to find necessary and sufficient conditions for philosophy here, but maybe something more like a family resemblance, which is um, a nice way of getting out of trouble, perhaps. Uh, so have a brief look at this list. Uh, we've got formulation and analysis of arguments, second-order meta-level thinking. Now, I know some people may be thinking, what's that? It's a bit jargony. Um, but rather than define it here and now, it might be good to come back to that later. Um, generality, understanding, special subjects such as metaphysics, ethics, epistemology, abstract thinking, dialogue or dialectic, very central for, for me anyway, hypothetical thinking, conceptual analysis, non-empirical or at least an awareness of the, of the distinction between empirical and non-empirical uh, discussions. Again, you may want me to clarify on these later, but I've got a lot to get through on the slides. History of ideas, revaluation or rethinking. So these, seems to be, these seem to me to be quite crucial and the sort of thing you might expect to see in academic philosophy. Okay, so let's have a look. Now, I must apologize briefly for the, the, the audio quality on this. I wanted to show you this so you can at least see that these come from genuine examples. And I've transcribed each of the examples afterwards. So if you are having trouble listening to it, uh, you should be able to read it afterwards. Then I've got an argument that proves there's only one universe and nothing doesn't exist. Go for it. So look, say, uh, I know the universe is the world, but say half of this room is uh, one universe and the other half of the room is uh, another universe. When they meet together, they must, they must have a point where they meet, and and what's to define that the two universes are different? I mean, they all have the same description. That they cover everything. And if the same universe was in nothing was there, the universe must be touching the nothing. And if it's touching it, then it must physically exist. So, therefore... There is only one universe, and nothing. I love the way he says, so, therefore, as if it's obvious. <laughs> uh, this is what he said. I've got an argument to prove there's only one in the universe and nothing doesn't exist. I know the universe is infinite, but say half of this room is the universe and the other half of the room another universe. When they meet together, they must have a point where they meet. And what is to define that the two universes are different? I mean, they all have the same description, they cover everything. And if the universe was here, points, and nothing was there, the universe must be touching the nothing. And if it is touching, um, and if it is touching, it must physically exist. So, therefore. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's 11, so he's in year five, uh, which is the penultimate year of primary school, and you'll notice the language he's using. He's picked up all sorts of language, such as argument, um, and description, therefore. I mean, it's, whether you think the argument's a good one or not, at least it, it is one. And I think it's a clear example of philosophical thinking. Prove. It might be the smallest physical thing, but surely energy must be made of something. Yeah. That, that, might, that might be like matter, because even gas and things are made of atoms, which 
is physical and like something that you can like pass your hand through. I think that's like something smaller than the atom which can't be divided because it's, it's actually not really physical. And so something that's smaller but not even physical. Particularly difficult to hear that one. I've called this Felix's monadology. They, atoms, might be the smallest physical thing, but surely energy must be made of something. There might be like matter that, because even gas and things are made of atoms, which is physical, makes something which you can pass your hand through. Maybe there's like something smaller than the atom which can't be divided because it's actually not really physical. Trying to transcribe children's stuff is really interesting. I think they invent a new kind of grammar. Um, there we are. So, very similar, you may notice, to Leibniz. <laughs> but. Different philosophers have different views about this. And what we're talking about today is a nice big long word you may have heard about, which is connected to this. has Felix come up with a, a monadology in the style of Leibniz, he's now come up with an objection to it. How does something that doesn't officially exist make something that does? You could say when two monads collide, because he had been introduced to Leibniz at this point, um, they get much bigger and make an atom. But how can things that don't have any stuff hit anything? skip these because we're running out of time and Anthony's doing a very good job. So what I shall do, I think I've got enough examples to make the points that I wanted to make, is quickly revisit the list and very briefly explain how I think each and every one of these things is being done in the examples that I've shown. Hopefully in the examples you've shown, maybe one missing from the others. But certainly we've got formulation analysis of arguments with Kieran. Um, didn't get to Alice's. Alice did a wonderful example of properties, things that have the properties of having no properties, in the sense she's getting into some second-order discussion. They're obviously, all of them, in, taking discussions of a general nature, uh, nowhere in particular, but 
crucially, and I think this is really important, is that there's understanding being demonstrated. These are not random sort of musings that could be pseudo-profound or could sound philosophical if you wanted them to. The, Felix and, no, and Kieran clearly understand what it is they're trying to say, and they understand uh, the, the philosophy that, they're, that I'm trying to show that they can do. Um, so hopefully, so that I can finish off, you can see by looking at the, the list that I do think in these examples, the children can be seen to be doing what we might call academically philosophy, and that list at least gives us a standard from which to then start and say, right, okay, now we can discuss this further. So thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. And that, that was absolutely great to actually have some uh, uh, children there and uh, debating, and that uh, has helped to make it very real. Um, you'll all have spotted Peter's deliberate error there. A 11-year-old will be a year six, not a year five. Not, not that that's just saying. He I mean, he they were ten. smart, but, uh, but but sort of more like year six, smart year five, rather than year five. John Taylor is going to be talking now about uh, project, amongst other uh, approaches. Off you go. Thanks very much. <clears throat> Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Am I audible at the back? Just, yeah, good. Um, so, from primary to secondary, and what I'd like to explain just uh, within my ten minutes is a little bit about a number of developments I've been involved in qualification developments over the past twelve years. The main aim of which has been to create space for philosophical inquiry uh, within the secondary curriculum. Um, I mean, without going into any definitions of philosophy. Uh, and very broadly, I'm interested in encouraging students to think for themselves. Um, <clears throat> I think it was Keith Ward who once quipped, my teachers told me to think for myself. Um, <laughs> and I'm one of those teachers, and um, although it's a little bit more sophisticated than that, uh, I do think that that, or if you like, the cultivation of intellectual autonomy is one of the reasons why we want and need more philosophy on the curriculum. Um, but how are we going to do that? Uh, in the current educational climate, for better or worse, we can't get away from the fact that questions of pedagogy are going to be linked to questions of assessment. And uh, although I have myself been involved in informal education and philosophy, uh, I feel that we can't escape from the fact that if we really want philosophy to have a significant place in our educational provision, it has to be by means of assessed qualifications. Uh, and how are we going to do that if we want our philosophy education to promote free thought, deeper thought, analysis, reflection, uh, the components of, of philosophical literacy, then we need the right assessment instruments. And my view, um, which you may want to discuss, is that short terminal assessment, uh, modularised, unitised, uh, in the form which it exists at the moment with many of our uh, qualifications isn't a very good vehicle for validly assessing the capacities which constitute uh, philosophical inquiry. I think exams do some things well, and I wouldn't like to go to a dentist who got his degree by coursework. Uh, but uh, there are skills which we want to see our students developing as philosophers, and we need other vehicles for doing that. And for my money, project work uh, reigns supreme in this regard, and the qualifications which I've helped to develop in recent years have all had that as their uh, motif. Uh, very briefly, because time is tight, uh, this work began for me almost exactly 12 years ago in a conversation uh, with other teachers, authors and academics involved in science education. Uh, this was 1999, so uh, 
just before Curriculum 2000 broke upon us. And I, I suggested over a lunchtime conversation at the science conference that it would be a nice idea to have an AS qualification in the history, philosophy, and ethics of science. Uh, we got some support from the Royal Society and the Wellcome Trust, and in 2004 launched a course called Perspectives on Science, which was at that time uniquely uh, an AS level qualification, so for post-16 students assessed solely by means of a research dissertation and a presentation, so there was no examined components. And we felt that was the right model for such a pro project course because we wanted to encourage discussion, debate, exploration of ideas in the classroom, and then we didn't want them to go into an exam where, and I, I feel heretical saying this at LSE, but where the question was, you know, name five things that were wrong with Popperian falsificationism. Um, so, so we wanted to actually connect pedagogy and assessment. Uh, the qualification was evaluated by uh, Ruth Amos, Michael Hand and Mark Ralph Levinson in 2008 and they looked specifically at these two issues of discussion, what it means to have high quality discussion in the classroom and what constitutes good practice in the supervision of research projects because as I'm sure you will appreciate uh, this is not a course which is taught didactically although we do think that there are certain frameworks, certain parts if you like of the intellectual architecture of philosophy which should be taught to students. The main aim is to equip them to inquire for themselves and to ask informed questions of their own choosing. Uh, so although there is a taught course basis which is crucial, the main uh, emphasis is on them developing the skills to research, to analyse, to argue and to present their findings. Uh, so that qualification ran as a freestanding AS between 2004 and 2008. It fed into a much larger development in the UK which you may have heard of uh, it's grown very rapidly from small start three years ago. Just under 16,000 students completed last year an extended project. Uh, this is a qualification which is equivalent to half an A-level, uh, like the prospectus course for which, uh, which served as a prototype for it. It's examined by means of uh, a student dissertation, although there are other forms as well of practical projects for students who prefer not to write too much. Uh, there's a 10-minute presentation of Biver at the end. And the ethos of the extended... How am I doing for time? Four minutes. Perfect. Uh, the ethos of the extended project lends itself very well, indeed, to philosophy. And that's no coincidence, actually, uh, because as chief examiner, I've been very keen to promote this as a vehicle for philosophical education. Uh, because one of the aims of the qualifications, the name suggests, is to extend students, to encourage them to take a question which might be off the syllabus, or perhaps a question where they're integrating two different areas and trying to think in a deeper, more analytic way uh, about, about knowledge and about uh, those conceptual questions which lie a little bit beyond uh, the remit of the standard A-level. I won't go into this too much, but this is just uh, to say that this work is now developing in a number of directions, including spin-off programmes at GCSE, uh, an inter-schools partnership, and some quite extensive teacher training, because quite clearly to teach in this way, uh, is, is something which not all teachers, even if they're enthusiastic about it, will feel comfortable. Uh, and so teacher training has been a, a significant part of the work I've been involved in. Um, here's a sample of the kind of thing that the students do. And so you can see from these, these are philosophically rich questions, but they're questions which come from uh, the students' own interests. They have a hook, either in terms of their aspirations for future work or study, or for some it's a very real uh, existential issue that they're in wanting to explore and the project becomes for them a means of essentially 
exploring themselves, self-discovery. A little anecdote about a student of mine who did the initial perspectives course when we piloted right back in 2004, uh, did a project on life after death. Uh, that came out of his own questioning about mortality. Uh, nice project. He was a science student, so we had chemical equations for the decay of bodies in there. Uh, we looked at the mind-body problem, materialism, dualism. He was quite materialistic, so I sent him to the chaplain to get a counter-argument. Uh, although we did have to discuss whether he regarded the chaplain as a primary or a secondary source. Uh, the project itself went very well. He, he, he argued it nicely, and then, uh, you know, as they do, a student left the school. I heard nothing from him until uh, two years ago, uh, halfway through his degree at King's in London, where he just explained to me that essentially this project had really shaped his intellectual horizons. Uh, he was fascinated by the theme, uh, consciousness, the mind-body problem, and that had led him to his degree course choice. He also ended by asking in the final sentence of the email if I still had a copy of the project because he had an exam coming up which would be useful. <laughs> so that's, that's what I've been up to. Um, a lovely quote actually from the evaluation I mentioned of the perspectives course which sums it up for me perfectly. Uh, it's about the liberation of learning. It's about uh, the love of exploring knowledge for the sake of exploring knowledge rather than trying to prove that Ohm's law is still Ohm's law. And it's a wonderful vehicle for other subjects, but particularly for the promotion of philosophy in our secondary schools. It was great to listen to John Taylor, who has made such a very substantial difference to the lives of opportunities of young people, particularly at the older ages older ages of schools and now we're going to hear about Mary Healy whose work is uh, with primarily younger people and that's great. Do you want this microphone down a bit? Thank you. Can everybody hear me? Great. Well, I'd just like to start by saying that I do not represent any organisation here or programme or company. Um, it's, it's difficult to know exactly where to, sit my, to situate myself within this round table as I was a teacher for more years than I care to admit to and I'm a philosopher of education and I'm now an academic. So my situation is neither common nor is it easily extrapolated from. My thoughts and comments are from my own experience within the classroom, and they're not the result of any extensive research that I might have undertaken. I fell into philosophy for children rather than chose to engage in it. I was working for a head teacher who had a double life as an Ofsted inspector. And he happened to inspect a school which was using P4C. And he was extremely impressed at what he was seeing there. And as I was at that time doing my PhD part-time in philosophy of education, he thought it would be an ideal opportunity to make use of my studies within the school. Naturally, I said no. And it wasn't because I was being precious about what counted as philosophy, nor was it in horror at the thought of young children doing philosophy. My simple concern was lack of time, and that can be a big problem, as well as being concerned that what I did as an adult philosopher 
may not translate into a primary school easily. However, a change of head teacher later, and the topic arose again. And this time there was no getting out of it. So the head teacher and I, we went to see P4C in progress in other schools, in a variety of classes and ages, with a variety, as I said, of ages, and we had teachers who were already involved in philosophy in schools come and talk to the staff. So I had lots of opportunity to observe other teachers using this particular format, mostly non-philosophers. And quality-wise, it was a very mixed bunch. Some were very much better than others. But it's difficult to generalize as to whether that was because they were better at teaching philosophy or whether they were just better teachers at it. So I was then put forward to train with Sapiri using a particular methodology developed from Matthew Lippmann's work in the US. And what I found particularly interesting within this was the development of a community of inquiry. The idea that the emphasis would be on learning together, supported and collaborative learning. Although the pupils led the discussion with topics chosen after democratically voting and a variety of open-ended questions raised by a stimulus, usually a picture book because of the age of the children, the teacher or facilitator challenged and deepened the thinking. It argued for a development of particular social behaviours, supporting one another in building arguments, taking one another's ideas seriously and collaborating and cooperating in challenging the, the thinking, a willingness to be open-minded to change, and the courage to change their minds in response to good reasons, and reflecting on value judgments. Now there have been numerous studies that look at the impact of P4C in the classroom from a large-scale CLAC manager project to smaller scale studies on the contribution to language development or logic or maths. To start I had to undertake considerable research. What sort of topics were relevant particularly to a young age group? What sort of skills did I want to inculcate in those children? And how was I going to develop a program of study over the year? Being a philosopher did give me an advantage, I suspect, in this, in that I could identify appropriate books for particular problems. I could recognize philosophical questions and had some knowledge, obviously, of the basic issues in the topics that the children might be trying to develop. Now, like any other teacher starting a new topic, I broke the methodology down into component parts that needed teaching. And I spent the first few sessions just working on identifying questions, just raising questions, and what sort of questions and sorting them out. And even with very young children of about the age six, seven, year twos, within two to three weeks, the children were asking reasonable, open-ended questions. And a further two to three, and they started asking quasi-philosophical questions. 
So once the individual parts and the related skills and procedures had been covered, then and only then did I start to run full inquiries. And I started from a discrete subject within the curriculum, finding the time, but it very soon progressed into other areas and targeting particular subjects such as English, art, PSHE and citizenship. Now obviously given the age and the developmental stages of the children, what they could do with the questions raised was somewhat limited. And it was very much at that very early stage of perhaps conceptual analysis, trying to identify the key concepts and trying to work out what we meant by some of those. But it did become clear that there wasn't actually always a necessary connection between the quality of the initial question raised and the inquiry that followed from it. And some of the least philosophical questions sometimes led to the deepest, most satisfying inquiries and equally, some of the most recognizably philosophical questions led nowhere with them. Yet I found that even young children can enter into that beginning stage, perhaps, of philosophical discussion on topics of interest to them, whether Andy Goldsworthy's stone pictures were art. And if they were, which bit was the art? Was it the making of the piles of stones? Or was it the photograph of it? And were there, in fact, two different pieces of art there? Or was it one? Or having similar concerns about what do we mean by friendship and good friendship? And as I was at the time reading the Nicomachean Ethics, Yes, I could see just a few little hints of some of those concerns in there. But what became very quickly apparent was the enjoyment of the children in all of this. They particularly enjoyed the voting aspect and the sense of control and voice in this and working as a community together. The children looked forward to the sessions. They talked about them outside of the classroom and even at home. And parents would often come in and comment about what their children were discussing at home. One of the interesting side effects that I found from my very limited experience there was an improvement in the children's behavior towards one another with a greater respect and toleration and teachers in other schools have also commented on similar features. Obviously, all these are apocryphal. Children who had specific learning difficulties in some areas seem to gain in confidence and have an opportunity to shine in this. And this methodology of critically engaging with their work spilled out from that discrete subject in the curriculum into other areas of learning without the need for encouragement. In many ways, much of the format is simply what we mean by good practice in teaching, allowing for reflection, considering some of the ethical issues that may be raised in texts, conceptual clarity. Now, obviously, my particular head teacher was really interested in 
SAT score improvement. And yes, the children did make improvement across the board. However, in previous years, children in my charge had also made considerable progress across the board. So whether you can say this is the cause of that, I don't know. It's unfortunate that since I left, the project no longer exists in that particular school. And this is a common occurrence in any topic whereby it relies on the expertise and enthusiasm of one person. But it does raise a particular problem for schools in that they can rarely afford to train more than one teacher in a school. While some schools have devoted much of their finances to whole school inset, not all schools are equally in a position to do this. I was lucky in that when I did my initial teacher training, philosophy paid a part in this, both as an optional module in philosophy and as philosophy of education. This is rarely the case now. And with considerable uncertainty about the future format of teacher education and training, this may not change. Organisations such as Sapere and the Philosophy Shop, individual trainers plus other similar bodies, have done an amazing job in promoting philosophy for children in schools. But this leaves little pockets of good practice around the country that can sometimes be unsupported and fall apart. The challenge is how to take this forward in a coherent fashion. And there is need for greater thought into how best to deal with some of these issues. No doubt, over the course of this evening, we'll be doing precisely this. Thank you all very much. And, uh, and thank you, Mary, there. And, and, you know, just picking up one of many things you said, wasn't it just tragic that uh, you uh, were saying there that uh, because of the need to get on with SATs, whatever they are, uh, that actual learning uh, and the joy of, I love the way you talked about joy uh, of learning is squeezed out as we, uh, we pulverize our kids through these utterly meaningless uh, exams uh, rather than actually educating them, uh, a radical idea that the government doesn't seem to understand. Okay, um, it's really interesting actually, um, just very quickly, uh, had uh, some teachers from a, a close by comprehensive in uh, chatting on Monday and they were saying, forget whatever you see, anything you see in uh, the mission statements of state schools, whatever they say, the grandiose, lofty things they say there, the simple fact is that every single state school in this country has one end and one end only, which is to maximize exam passes. And I think that's very sad, and I think it's very true. Let's do the first question. And can we have really pithy questions? Uh, yep. Yep, uh, we, we, we got the mic there, we got the mic, we got the speaker, and we just need to marry them up together and then we're going to have a moment of real harmony. Um, hello, I just really wanted to ask the panellists perhaps to add a little bit about um, different uh, conceptions that we were, I think, getting a hint of this, different conceptions of exactly how philosophy should be taught, and I'm particularly interested in primary school at that level. Okay, so, um, uh, th thanks for that. Let's take Mary on that. I'm going to ask Simon, do you want our questioners to introduce themselves or is that something you have a philosophical issue with? We don't need to do that. Okay, marvellous. Let's take it away, Mary. Okay, I hope you can hear me uh, this way. Um, 
I think it very much depends on the age of the child and the developmental stage they're at. What's appropriate with very young children, I was dealing with uh, children six, seven. Sometimes I even went into the nursery to talk and do some activities with those children. It's going to look very different to the way that you might with children who are at the upper end of a primary school, the 10s and 11s. There it would be appropriate to be, as Peter was saying, uh, talking about perhaps some of these philosophical issues in more depth and trying to draw on some bodies of content there. But with very young ones, it's very different. And like any other teacher, you work with the children that are there in front of you. Okay, I mean, th th these three key questions of why do we do it in schools, and should every school do that, what should you do, and what is the right age, as we've got a questioner coming up here. We haven't, by the way, mentioned the International Baccalaureate, which, of course, has critical thinking. It's up here, uh, the person, next person, uh, which has theory of knowledge as the compulsory element in it. You know, I think that every single child should be doing the... Uh, IB at its three different levels. Yep, question, please. Um, thanks for your talks. Um, it seems to me there are two interesting um, developments going on in uh, English education. Um, one is this attempt to teach young people to become more conscious of their emotions and how to manage their emotions, which is something that uh, Anthony's school has led the way on. And the other is this movement to uh, train children in thinking and reasoning and critical thinking. In, in ancient education, those were the same subject. You were taught to think about beliefs and values, and you also taught to, uh, to think about your own beliefs and your own emotions. And I wonder what the panel thinks is the relation between those two streams, and whether they can be brought into a greater dialogue, whether children can, for example, be taught to examine their ideas of happiness and what it is to have a good life. Should, should we take Peter on that? Or? Yeah. Um, I, th I think there's clearly a relationship between emotions and reason, if, that's, if we can characterize it in that way. Um, and I also think that it's hugely problematic exactly how these two go together. I'm certainly not an expert on, on how they connect. But it seems that, that there's certainly a relationship in the sense that what we think of conceptually when we understand, as you say, the example you give is happiness. Um, there's, there's clearly room for uh, the analysis of that concept from a reasoned point of view. And of course, you know, historically, people like Spinoza and Plato had an awful lot to say about the, the emotions and the passions um, long before psychology came along. And they put it into conceptual philosophical terms, as well as also maybe a little bit of sort of um, nascent psychology as well. Um, but I don't know if that, if that answers your question. Yeah, I, I, can I, if I just add there, I think that it would be helpful for young people to learn about mindfulness, which is looking at the process of the movement of thought and emotion through their minds and learning how to detach themselves from it. When you do that, then life looks very different indeed, and you know everybody can learn about that. Yep, gentleman here. How do science teachers react when the pupils are also learning the philosophy of science? Do they ever complain that the pupils uh, come and tell them, oh, chemistry is just a series of lies, and so why are you, why are you teaching this to us? Very good. Uh, I, I haven't had that complaint. Um, um, I mean, I, I, there's a kind of presupposition behind your question about what we're doing when we teach them the philosophy of science. Um, I mean, I, I uh, will give you one anecdote 
which links to a sort of more general theme about how this approach relates more generally to science education. And it's a question which was asked as part of a focus group interview of one of the students on the perspectives course uh, who was asked whether or not doing a course in the philosophy of science had helped her understanding of science. And she didn't answer directly, but she simply said, it's helped us to think. And I think that's the point. Um, you know, students who've gone a little bit deeper have, have been exposed to, if you like, some of the foundational questions are given thereby a capacity to engage critically. And yes, I suppose it does make them a little bit more argumentative um, and willing to put awkward questions, but that's probably a good thing if there's a chemistry teacher who can't justify the existence of atoms, they ought to have students like that in their lesson. Absolutely, it helps the teachers to, to think and puts them on their metal much more. It, it, it's a real education for teachers when students come back at them. Question here at the front. Hi, um, my, it's more of a comment in the nature of a comment and asking for a reaction to it. It seems to me if we're looking for what's central in uh, philosophy in schools, it, it is in dialogue and that everything else flows from the dialogue. The connection between thinking and emotion flows from the dialogue. The uh, ability to in interrogate their other subjects flows from dialogue. The ability to improve their, uh, their idea of, of happiness, of how to relate to each other. All of this is centrally in dialogue. Can I respond? Yeah, please, absolutely. Yes, I, I think you were at a talk I gave the other day on, on I was talking exactly about about exactly that. And it seems that, interestingly, dialogue is present even, even when someone is doing philosophy on their own. Um, famously, Descartes... Yeah, doing it well on their own, that's right. So Descartes' meditation is a classic example of someone sitting down on their own and effectively undergoing a dialogue with themselves that reads very similarly to the sort of dialogue you get in Plato, just with one person instead of many. So what I'm aiming to do is to, to develop, or what we should, philosophy with children should aim to do, I think, is aim to develop that, that dialogue both externally with their friends and peers in the class and then model for, for themselves, model to themselves exactly how the dialogue then goes on in their own head. Um, so they internalise the dialogue with Socrates' silent dialogue. <laughs> There's so many different ways we could answer all these questions, the panel. Yeah. Hello. Um, I'm just wondering about this business of expertise and facilitating philosophy. So I, like two of you, am a philosopher who was also a practitioner in schools, and I'm interested to know what all of your take is on whether that's important that people have a foundation in philosophy in order to do this or I know there are many teachers now without that foundation in philosophy that are practicing philosophy in their classrooms how do you feel about that is it a good thing is how important is this expertise that, that you mentioned Mary can I put the question to Mary who, who deals with the youngest ones and should all primary school children aged from 4 to 11 learn philosophy I'd love to see it, but it depends on what you mean by philosophy and being appropriate to that particular age group. Um, going back to what you were saying about the teachers and their expertise, it certainly helps if you know uh, some philosophy. And I have seen some practice that perhaps I wouldn't be very happy having classified as philosophy from people who weren't necessarily trained as philosophers. So. I've also seen some very good practice from people who don't have a background in philosophy working with children of this age. But I think going towards the older children, there's a greater need for it. 
Peter also wants to come in. Would you um, agree? I, w I would like to also add that, that I think the interesting, one of the things we put in the white paper, which you've, you've got copies of, is that we think that, that teachers should undergo philosophical training to some extent. Because one of the problems that we often find is that, is that although there are some teachers who are not philosophers who do very good jobs, there's also teachers who are not philosophers who don't. And, and, and one of the problems that they often do is they psychologize the discussion. So it becomes a discussion about how you feel, uh, much more than about what you think or how can you justify or conception or whatever it is. So, but it doesn't seem to me that this is because teachers are intrinsically bad at this. It's just that they are, they are trained in psychology and that's something they do as part of their training. But they don't do anything in, in philosophy. And I have to say that one of the really, really big missing things in teacher training, and we would argue that, is the argumentation. I, I very often attend set, uh, uh, inset days and I say, do you know what formal argumentation is? And more often than not, that most teachers do not know. So it seems to me a huge hole, um, quite independently of philosophy, they don't even understand, uh, not taught, how to deal with basic argumentation. Okay, we'll take three questions together. We'll begin with Simon, and then the gentleman here, and there'll be one other. Uh, Anthony raised the, raised the question about when, when one might start, and I think, Mary, you came back to the first question with respect to, um, you know, that you could begin very young indeed, you, you were in a nursery, uh, and that was in response to a question about how, how you do it, um, and your answer to the question was how you do it was well, it depends what age they're at, but I'd like if I may just to put this, that same earlier question to uh, Peter, uh, because I know you, you have fairly strong views that I've heard before about, I don't want to talk about specific organisations, but questions about how you do philosophy with children, rather than it being about how you do it with what age, just at all, what it means to do philosophy with children. Well, I think okay. well, 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 um, if, what, <laughs> if we take all three together, and then, yes. Um, well, Peter's partly anticipated what I was going to be talking about, but... Um, and, and this may be something for later on, but it, it seems to me that one of the problems with getting philosophy into schools is unless we get the government on board with it, it will only ever be a patchy provision by a, a small group of enthusiasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that, A, we've got to persuade the government that it's something that's worthwhile doing, and then, as Peter said, it's got to be something that's embedded in teacher training because schools just can't afford to train all their teachers that's right. That's right. in that way. It has to be... They have to be trained to do that before they get into the classroom in the first place. Okay, ex excellent point, question. And then final one at the back. Okay, so quick question for you, Anthony. Yeah. You said earlier that you were speaking to um, a head of a local state school yeah. about how uh, state schools are geared towards just passing exams. That state school wasn't the one over the road. Uh, is that the one you were at? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you give me a wink or something. Uh, you have to, everyone have to wait for the answer to that one. Okay, I'll right. Back after, okay. Just a bit of suspense there. Philosophy and suspense go so well okay. together. Okay. I and know, actually, another more substantial question, though. Yeah. Just quickly. Um, so, is there a danger, perhaps, at teaching philosophy to very young children that some may uh, become slightly nihilistic because of it? And if so, is there any ways to safeguard against this? existential crises amongst the toddlers. Right, what we're going to do is we're going to take those three questions there and we're going to begin, just in reverse order, from Mary coming through and pick up on any of those that you want to. So Mary first. And bear in mind, we have now just run out of time. Okay, uh, yes, I think it would be wonderful if there was philosophy within teacher training. Um, 
not just because it makes jobs for philosophers, I hasten to add, but also because I think it is so important in the concept of education itself that teachers who are within schools understand the why behind what they're doing and can discuss some of these issues. Uh, when we're talking about some of the other issues there about perhaps how, again, I said it's to do with the age of the child. With a very young child, you might just be raising questions with them, teaching them about what is a question. It may simply be talking about a story in a particular way. As children get older, you can then start to engage in some of the issues behind some of the stories, pull out some of the morals, pull out some of the ethics, some of the other problems there, and then start to do some real conceptual analysis there of how the children understand this, and then start to engage with how you can take that thinking deeper and in different ways. Thank you, John. Uh, very, very briefly for me, um, I think the situation, uh, once we get to secondary stage, actually looks very promising and I think there's a huge opportunity at the moment for philosophy. As I was saying, qualifications like the ones I've been involved in uh, growing very rapidly and a clear philosophical ethos valuing all the things that we've been trying to get more of. Um, in my experience, I, 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 for many years I worried as a curriculum developer that I, I assumed there must be a department for the curriculum and I never found it. There, there isn't. Um, if you want to get involved in curriculum development, the answer is roll up your sleeves and get going. Uh, push hard, get the right people on board, and you can do it. And there's a challenge here for philosophy. Uh, the second most popular A-level at the moment is psychology. Now, that is not for vocational reasons. That's simply because students are enthralled by the questions that psychology raises. And the same is true of philosophy. Uh, we're on the league table. We're down at about 1% of A-level students at the moment, but growing rapidly. Uh, numbers have risen year on year. If you add in the numbers uh, to RE, uh, and those numbers have been rising year on year as well, and not because everybody wants to read Marx's Gospel, but because they want to do philosophy and ethics, uh, then if you added those numbers to the numbers doing A-level philosophy, you'd reach around about 7% of all A-level students at the moment, which is more than do A-level economics. There's a huge opportunity out there. We all need to roll our sleeves up. We all need to get involved in teacher training, the kind of programs we've been talking about, to make sure that this is philosophy done properly with a proper understanding of argumentation and a proper understanding that it's not a dogmatic discipline, but one which aims to encourage independent thinking. Thank you, John. Peter. Um, finally, um, I, wrote, I woke up this morning and read my Lewisham News Shopper, which um, just seemed to list lots of knifings going on. And I, I wonder whether, <laughs> I, I thought to myself, here's the nihilism, and it's because they haven't, they haven't done any philosophy. So it, uh, it's the other way around. Um, <laughs> to, but but br br briefly speaking, I do agree entirely with the point made earlier um, that it, the government needs to be behind this. We're, we're in the process of trying to sort this out. Um, we're taking a white paper to the government. We've got a petition, so if you want to support our petition, which is the 4Rs campaign, which can be found on our website, um, thephilosophyshop.co.uk, um, please go there. Please sign the, the petition, because that's what we're going to be taking um, to try and get this to, to, to move away from the patchiness that I think is absolutely right we have. Uh, nothing other than that? Okay. Uh, three final quick points from me uh, would be one, I think that every single uh, child should uh, study philosophy. I think they should probably start from about the age of uh, eight, uh, though why not uh, get them thinking philosophically from even earlier ages? And I categorically would not make it for what uh, for those people deemed to be more academically able. I would uh, have every single uh, child. I think they would love it. 
uh, it would really stimulate them and it would put them back in charge of material rather than being passive recipients to uh, uh, the great uh, uh, sloughs of information chucked at them that they have to rote learn for these exams. Uh, so that's point one, uh, everyone to do it. Point two, I do uh, worry about a gulf between the independent sector and the state sector on this panel. Uh, two, of the four of, two out of the four of us are from independent schools, yet we represent only 7% of the young people in this country, and actually Peter works in our own uh, prep school, uh, our own junior school, uh, and, and does work there amongst uh, many other places. Uh, and surely this should be there for everybody. And why is it more there in independent schools? I think it's because we're less bound by the need to uh, have every single drop of time squeezed towards exam uh, result maximisation, and, and because there's uh, more money there too. Uh, we have Julian Baghini, or is it Julian Bajini, uh, as our philosopher in residence, you know, I've often thought I'm going to ask you, Julian, which one it is, but uh, I know he's going to say, well, it depends. So uh, uh, there's no point in getting into that discussion. And the third one is that uh, talking to the government uh, just a couple of weeks ago about Shakespeare, and it's another thing that I'm very keen on, that all young people, all young people uh, get to be exposed to Shakespeare. Uh, their response is, uh, we're not going to put that into any curriculum documents. If you uh, want that to happen, you motivate people to want to do it. And therefore, I think a real message of today is that, that we just got to get on and do it and fire people up, fire teachers up with it. Uh, so personally there, having done philosophy as part of my degree at university and, uh, and really found it so totally totally boring. Um, I, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to start teaching this with, uh, when, I, when I was head of a school called Brighton College, and I, th I started teaching it to a group of uh, lower six formers, and I challenged them to beat me. So I taught them, uh, and they all sat it uh, at the exam, at the AS level, and they all got A's. And, and I refused, because they were just doing what the examiners were looking for, and I just, you know, was really querulous and really argumentative, and, and I just scraped a B. Uh, and they all beat me and the lesson there is it depends thank you all very much indeed